So I've developed a new nighttime routine where before I fall asleep every night, I will scroll through endless videos of baby animals. And my husband can attest. It's usually llamas, puppies, some hedgehogs. But if I'm honest, my nighttime routine is actually that I will lie in bed and then I'll scroll through, almost compulsively, about 20 minutes of headlines. And then I go and watch videos of baby animals so that I can fall asleep. It's probably not the healthiest habit to have, I'm sure, but I feel a constant struggle to want to stay awake and engaged with what's going on in the world and then still needing to fall asleep at night. Maybe you can relate. You know, it feels like several lifetimes ago since I was up here in March, and since then, we have grown very familiar with ugliness. I think many of us are angry, we're tired, fearful, or sad right now, because we have seen a lot of ugliness in the world and ugliness in the people around us on an almost hourly basis. But I'm not here to talk to you about ugliness. I'm actually here to talk to you about beauty, specifically the beauty of Christ. But I think we need to get honest about what we mean by beauty, because beauty is in the eye of the holder, right? But just as ugliness creates an almost visceral reaction in us, it makes us want to look away, it makes our blood boil, it makes us uncomfortable. Beauty also evokes a strong reaction in us. If ugliness fills us with hate, then beauty makes us want to worship. And every civilization, every human, has been on a search to find beauty, to define it and to capture it. You know, we've tried to pinpoint it in human faces, in fashion trends, art, literature, music, but also philosophies, doctrines, religions, morality. These are all pieces of our search for what is beautiful. Because we are looking for what's pure, what's flawless, what's lovable, what moves us to worship. Beauty is about what moves us to worship. The main text I want us to look at today is actually one that Pastor Andrew quoted when he started this series on beauty and adversity. It's Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. So I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, but feel free to follow along um, in whatever translation you have. The first three verses read, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant, speaking of Jesus, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic in his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. And he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. According to this passage, Christ was not beautiful to us by our definitions. It says there was nothing beautiful or majestic in his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. It says he came to us tender, vulnerable, as small as a young plant. He was like a root in dry ground, sent to a world that did nothing to nourish him, to affirm him. There was nothing there by our human standards that was worthy of worship or admiration. But how could that be? 
We can't start to understand the beauty of Christ without first confronting the fact that the Bible says that he was thoroughly unbeautiful to us. And we need to understand our relationships with beauty. We can trace our relationship with beauty back to Genesis. If you think about the account of God creating the world, God was the ultimate, the sole source of goodness and beauty. All that he created bore witness to that beauty, and he affirmed it as being beautiful. Plants and animals were created with variety and abundance and sometimes cuteness, and he said that it was good. And then came humanity, created in the image of God. And the Bible says that he called it very good. You know, beauty was defined by God himself as creator. And everything he created bore a mark of his beauty. But, spoiler alert, things don't stay that way. Three chapters into the story, Adam and Eve disobey God by making a decision to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the promise of this tree, the allure of it, is that they will become like God. Because now instead of relying on God to define good, the eating from this tree meant that they would choose to reject God's definition, to reject his definition of beauty and goodness, and to begin to define it for themselves. And you see the effects immediately. If we look at the moment Adam and Eve take a bite of the fruit, the moment when sin enters the world, you see a sudden shift in the way that their eyes work. It says that at that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. At that very moment, their eyes were opened. They saw their nakedness. They felt ashamed. Now, this whole time, Adam and Eve have been naked. You know, what changed when they ate the fruit was not their nakedness, but it was the way that they saw themselves and the way that they saw each other. Because prior to the fall, their role hadn't been to create beauty, but to cultivate it. It wasn't to define beauty, but to appreciate it. God created beauty. Anything that reflected God was beautiful. And Adam and Eve enjoyed it and stored it. But now the roles are reversed. All of a sudden, they look at themselves and they no longer see God's image or this stamp of inherent beauty and goodness that had been given to them. They see each other looking at them and they have no idea what the other person thinks, what the other person sees. But they know that they see nakedness, they see vulnerability, and they feel shame. The assurance that they were beautiful, that they were good, had now transformed into a question. Am I beautiful? Am I worthy? Am I good? And it created this deep insecurity in each of them. A burning need to figure out what was good and beautiful because they needed to know that they were that. And they would no longer find that definition from God, but from piecing it together by the things that they saw in the world. Two summers ago, I watched a movie called Crazy Rich Asians. Perhaps you've seen it. By cinematic standards or even plot standards, it's not very groundbreaking. Um, but it was a pretty good movie. It was funny. It was lighthearted. But when the lights came on in that dark theater, I had to excuse myself to the restroom because I found myself swallowing back tears. And what, was, what I was experiencing in that moment felt like it was happening so deeply in my subconscious that I couldn't even put into words what I was feeling until a couple days later. 
You see, until I watched Crazy Rich Asians, a blockbuster chick flick with an all-Asian cast, I didn't realize that I had been waiting my whole life to see someone who looked like me. Not someone who looked like me, who was a stereotypical supporting character, or even someone who looked like me, who was the star of a foreign film, but a leading woman in an American-made movie that became the highest-grossing romantic comedy in the last 10 years, who had hair, skin, and eyes that looked like mine. I shared the last time that I was up here that I spent the formative years of my childhood growing up as a little Asian girl in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I spent my childhood playing with dolls with light hair, light skin, light eyes. I watched movies and TV where girls who were held up as attractive and desirable looked nothing like me. And even amongst my peers, I looked nothing like the girls who were popular. No one commented jealously on my hair or my eyes. In fact, when people talked about my eyes, they would pull the corner of theirs to signal just how different I was, how foreign, even ugly. So it was an overwhelming experience, a new one, to see a world that would put out a definition of beauty that I could possibly fit in, and it was overwhelming. This is the question that we're all longing to answer. Am I beautiful? Am I good? Am I worthy? And the search for beauty is ultimately an identity crisis. We are searching for ourselves. We are searching for affirmations of our own beauty. And we are looking for a definition that is made in our own image. Beauty and goodness in the world, it's no longer a fixed point, no longer defined by a God who is unchanging, whose creative hand has its signature in every piece of creation and every person. No, now beauty and goodness, it's a moving target that you may be born completely outside of, or you may meet one day and completely fall short of the next. My guess is that at some point in your life, you have felt ugly. You have felt like you did not fit in to a definition of what was beautiful and good, whether it was the way you looked, or the things you loved, the beliefs you held, the people you voted for. Like Adam and Eve, we are afraid that we are not beautiful. We feel shame and vulnerability, and we want to cover up. And this desire to cover ourselves in our insecurity means that when we are given the power to define beauty, we will try and create a world in which our own image is considered beautiful. We'll create a definition that fits people who look most like us. And when we don't have the power, we will live in a world where we are forced to fit inside someone else's definition, we will feel perpetually out of place, unwanted, and we will grow in resentment. You know, our eyesight, it's changed a great deal since Eden. Our definition of beauty has too. So, so much so that when the maker of beauty himself appeared in our midst, it says in John 1, that though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So if our vision is not what it once was, how can we see Christ's beauty? How can we see his beauty if we take our broken definitions and we try to superimpose them on God? Well, the answer lies in the second half of this passage, but I'll warn you that it's not going to be easy on the eyes. It says, 
Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. You know, after Eden, we didn't recognize God. So God became like us. Christ identified with us in our humanity. But more so, he also chose to carry our weaknesses. He shared in our sorrows. He was killed for our rebellion and sin. He chose to identify with us. And if we were looking for a reflection of ourselves in Jesus, we needed only to look as far as the scars on his hands and the wounds on his back. But still, we chose not to identify with him. We turned away. We thought he was ugly. The difficulty with gazing directly at the beauty of Christ is that it might remind us of parts of ourselves that we would rather not see. We would rather see, we, we can see ourselves in this passage, but it's not the parts that we like to look at. You know, it's the same reason why it's so hard to look straight on at suffering. Why after seeing poverty or reading devastating headline after devastating headline, we crave something light to help us forget. Seeing pain, death, and struggle, it reminds us of our insecurity and how fragile whatever security we've managed to build in this life really is. It takes us back to that moment in Eden when we felt exposed and vulnerable, naked and ashamed. Jesus wasn't beautiful to us because his suffering reminded us of the ugliest parts of ourselves, and we would rather shape our definitions and our identities without that. So we look away. But it's so important that we don't. It's so important that we look. Because we need to gaze directly at the Christ we don't find beautiful in this moment. Remembering that it's not his ugliness that's so hard to look at, but our own. We need to look, not because our faith is about feeling guilty, because there is a resurrection and Christ came for the forgiveness of sins, but because we desperately need our definitions to be challenged. If you skim over Jesus on the cross and you skip ahead to the resurrection, if you create a faith that's based solely on Christmas Day and Easter morning, you will never be able to see the fullness of the beauty of Christ. You will never be able to see the beauty of Christ unless you are willing to embrace discomfort because comfort is ultimately about living by our own definitions of goodness and beauty. It means that ultimately we will never see Christ because we will suffer from one of two conditions. The first condition means that we turn away from Christ completely because he doesn't match our definition of what's good. You know, when we look at him, he's not beautiful. He's not what we hoped, so he's not worthy of our worship. But the second condition, it looks a lot like worshiping Jesus. But it's one that fits Jesus into our definition of good and beautiful. We sanitize the Savior. We see what we want. We ignore what we don't. And he becomes a Jesus who looks a lot like we do. If we can't look at Christ in this passage and see him as beautiful, we will either bury him or we will build him ourselves. We will bury him in the grave with all of the people that we would rather cancel because they don't look how we would like them to. Or we will build Christ like a Spotify playlist 
putting the tracks that we love on repeat and skipping over the ones that we find distasteful. Now this first condition is pretty easy to diagnose. You usually know when you're no longer a fan of Jesus. But the second one is a lot more subtle because you are trained to think that your eyes are correct your whole life. So it's hard to know if you're seeing the real thing. But here's one way that you might be able to diagnose if you suffer from the second condition, by asking yourself a few questions. Are there parts of Jesus' teachings that I disagree with? Are there parts of God's character that make me uncomfortable? Is there a possibility, no matter how small, that Jesus might disagree with any parts of my theology or lifestyle? If your answer to any of those questions is no, then I say this as gently as possible, that you may be following a version of Jesus created in your own image. If Jesus always shows up exactly as you think he will, if he never surprises you, shocks you, or offends you, you may be following a version of Jesus that is shaped to look a lot like you, shaped to affirm who you are, shaped to match your definition of beautiful. Which means, if you're ever confronted with the whole Jesus, it'll make you want to look away too. Both of these conditions end in violence. Neither of them is willing to change their definitions of beauty. And Jesus was crucified because he did not match the definition of what they thought he ought to look like. If we do not truly see Jesus, if we aren't willing to reconcile our definition of beauty with God's definition, we will crucify him over and over again. We'll also hurt ourselves, bending over backwards to conform to whatever definition of beauty and goodness rules the day. And we will hurt others, condemning them when they don't fit into our definitions, creating friend groups, churches, ideologies, policies, systems, that mean that we don't have to live with or listen to people that we find unattractive and leaving little opportunity to see the image of God in people who aren't like us. When we look around, it's natural then that the world would be filled with ugliness and we will fill it with ugliness. But there's hope. Thank God that there's hope. And I wanna tell you a story that I heard in high school that you may have read. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, and we'll just stick with the synopsis, even though I'm sure there's many theories that you could go into. Dorian Gray is a handsome, affluent young man who's obsessed with the pleasures of life. But he becomes terrified at the thought that one day his beauty is going to fade. He's so scared to the point where he agrees to sell his soul so that a portrait of him will age instead of himself. And what follows this wish is a life where you see Dorian keep his physical beauty. He stays looking like, but the painting of him gets uglier and uglier with every decision he makes. Every wound he inflicts from careless words to heartbreak to even murder. The painting becomes so grotesque that he cannot bear to look at it because he knows that more than his physical appearance, that painting is a reflection and a true representation of who he is on the inside. 
he grows disturbed and even tries to reform himself. He tries to be good for a little while. But when the picture only gets uglier, he realizes that even his desire to be good is a selfish one because he wants to feel better about himself. Dorian is trapped by this internal battle, so he decides to put an end to the curse once and for all by getting rid of the picture. So he takes the knife that he used to murder his friend, and he stabs the portrait to destroy it. And the story ends with someone finding an ugly, decrepit body stabbed through the heart that they can only identify as Dorian because of the rings on his hands. And they also find at the scene a beautiful, untouched picture of the young Dorian Gray. What an absolutely disturbing story, right? I did not like reading that one in class. It made me miss the days of Shiloh. But the resemblance is uncanny. In Eden, in our world, we have made the decision to define beauty and goodness for ourselves. And in doing so, we have sold our souls and our identities. And every attempt, every pursuit at beauty and goodness now feels incomplete, unsatisfying. We either have it for a little while, but it's temporary and it fades, or the definition continues to morph faster than we can keep up. Even our attempts to do good feel marked with self-affirmation, or they end up causing more hurt. How do we get out of this story? How do we get back to true beauty as it was meant to be? What picture do we need to stab to get out of this thing? But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This is where our story diverges from Dorian's, because another was pierced for our rebellion when it should have been us. The burden and the consequence of our sins, our ugliness, was laid on an untarnished image, and we could not bear to look. But by his wounds, we have been made whole. We have been made beautiful. The world will tell you that you will never be beautiful enough. You'll never be good enough. The world will make you strive after your worth, forcing you to fit into whatever definition makes you feel better about yourself. The world will allow you to feel beautiful for a moment to remind you that it can be taken away. And it will give you power so that you can make sure that it's not. When we look in the mirror, it should be unbearable to look at. But you no longer need to be defined by insecurity and striving. You no, not, no longer need to be defined by ugliness. You are now defined by the image of your creator, the image of God that cannot be taken away. It cannot be taken away. Because Christ came into the world and they wouldn't look at him. And the world tried to tempt him with power to demand his own adoration and worship, and it couldn't. The world tried to take away his beauty, and it couldn't. They buried him, and he rose again. 
and when he rose, there was no denying that he was worthy of worship, that he was beautiful. A beautiful savior who still bears the scars on his hands and feet so that we remember the lengths that he went through so that we could look like him, so that we could see him when we look at ourselves, so that we can begin to define beauty much differently. The beauty of Christ is the corrective lens that we need, and it's not meant to be an escape or a pair of blinders so that we can just look at Jesus and block out the rest of the world. No, we don't get to look away from the world, but it allows us to see ugliness as it truly is, but also beauty as it truly is. It allows us to see more clearly what is going on and to do so with hope and resilience, to press in, to embrace what we see, to examine it, and to even examine ourselves. Don't you want to see more beauty? I know I do. So let me end with a few takeaways on how we can come to see more clearly. The first is to come with humility. Admitting you need glasses is the first place you start. I've had terrible vision ever since I've been a child, but I always knew I needed glasses because I heard people talking about things like right angles and definition, and I was like, what are those? But I didn't want glasses because back in the day, they did not fit in with the elementary school definition of beautiful. They've been rebranded now, thankfully. I managed to put off getting glasses for a couple years by actually memorizing eye charts and then reciting them um, to pass the vision tests. But there came a time when I realized that it was better to look a little different and to see clearly than to look normal and not be able to see at all. To see the beauty of Christ, it means accepting that the way that we see the world and even the ways that we see God may not be as clear as we'd like to think. It means recognizing that maybe some of our definitions of beauty and goodness need to be corrected and that maybe they've been shaped more by other people than by God himself. And it means a willingness to perhaps look a little strange to those around us because until we accept our own condition, we won't want glasses. We won't want to change the way that we see things. So come with humility, don't come alone. I suffer from that second condition that I described. I have a tendency to see Jesus made in my own image, an alien who's far from home, someone who isn't the pop, most popular kid in class, a deep feeler, a person whose sense of justice flares up and makes them wanna flip tables, a lover of seafood, a crafter of stories, a mentor, a friend. And while many of these things that I see in Jesus are true, although some of them may be more biblically sound than others, it's not a complete picture of Jesus. I will never see a complete picture of Jesus when I am looking for myself or by myself. That's why seeing a piece of myself represented on that big screen when I saw that movie was so powerful because it reminded me that the definition of beauty I had carried my whole life was an incomplete one. I need the continued reminder that my vision alone is not enough. I need that push, not just towards one moment of humility, 
but to have humility every day, a daily understanding that not everyone sees the world as I do, which means I need to live and process the world in community, and not just any community, but a community of people who see things very differently than I do. There's nothing like other people to remind you that the way you see things is out of whack. And people are the ones who can offer us grace and disagreement with whom we can dialogue and be reminded that we each bring our own biases, beliefs, and assumptions into the world. So come with humility, don't come alone, and lastly, don't look away. There will be times when it's intensely painful to have your vision corrected. If you allow Jesus to be your definition of beauty, you will see a lot more ugliness in the world, especially in yourself. When I became a Christian, I remember thinking, man, I don't think I was this awful of a person before I was a Christian. And then someone wise told me, it's not that you're more awful than you were before, but now you have the ability to see awfulness a lot more clearly. When you start to examine everything that you see, when you accept that there's a need to correct your vision, you may feel disoriented at first. You might want to take off the glasses. You might miss the days when you couldn't see things so clearly. But you will also be able to see more beauty than you ever have in places that you thought it wasn't there, in the world, in others, in yourself. The way you see yourself will be different, not as someone who needs constant affirmation, but someone who has unshakable value and worth that cannot be taken away, regardless of what the world says. The way you see others will also be radically different. In Matthew 25, Jesus commends his disciples for caring for the least of these, and he also rebukes other disciples for not doing those very things, feeding him when he was hungry, giving him water when he was thirsty, clothing him when he needed clothes, visiting him when he was in prison. And they get all defensive, and they say, when did we see you? We didn't see you, Jesus. And the answer is that they didn't. They didn't see Jesus in the least of these. They didn't see him in the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, or the imprisoned. They weren't looking. And maybe they were even actively looking away. The difference between whether you'll be able to see beauty in this world, not just in your friend, but in your enemy, you know, the one you think whose vision needs to be corrected right now, is whether or not you are looking to see the image of God reflected in them or your own. So come with humility. Don't come alone. Don't look away. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not really as simple as putting on a pair of glasses. Wish it was. But correcting your vision is a journey, one that I'm on, to take the ways that you've defined goodness and beauty your entire life and unrelentingly hold them up to God's definitions. It's a choice that you have to make every day with every interaction, and it's costly. It's painful. But I think we've seen a lot of evidence in our world lately that the cost of not doing so will end up being much higher. I want to end with a story of a man named William Reed. William was born colorblind, and he's seen the world his entire life in shades of brown. On his 66th birthday, William's family pitched in to buy him a pair of Enchroma glasses, which help correct colorblindness. And his reaction reminds me 
of how much I desperately long to see the beauty of Christ, especially right now. And how maybe, maybe it's in front of me and I'm missing it. Go ahead and play the video. Can you see with our eyes now, baby? Can you, what colors you see? Those. You see colors now? Oh, <laughs> 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 now you have rose colored glasses, baby. Now you see with our eyes. Do you like the balloons? Help us to see both the ugly and the good. Help us to see ourselves clearly, but more importantly, help us to see you clearly. God, I pray that you would give us courage, hope, and resilience to confront what we see. Lord, help us to not turn away from what we see in the world, but to look more closely at it, but through your eyes. Help us to do it from a place of knowing the unshakable beauty that we have been given. Not earned, but given. And help us to believe that that still exists in every person and in our world. God, you say that one day we will see in full what we now see in part. But I pray that you would begin that work in us now. Would you begin that work in us? that we can see you for who you are and not as who we would like you to be.